Section 12 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Summer Hours on Braden, Part 3. The larger area referred to is a wide spreading shingly level, interspersed by patches of sparse verdant dune herbage. The terns, the common Sterner fluviatilis, and the little Sterner minuta, had much to say by way of protest, and flew screaming around, the little chit pearl as vociferous as its larger relative, in excited hundreds, like so many whirling snowflakes, keeping up their objection so long as we kept upon the move. The nests in many places were but a yard apart. A triangular stride would cover three of them. I was struck by the marvellous correspondence in colour of the eggs to their surroundings. Those deposited among the rufous-tinted shingle were of a russet colour. The ground here was almost as smooth as if it had been rolled. Indeed, the levelled stones gave one the impression of a rude attempt at tessellated pavement. Among the blue-grey patches of pebbles, the predominating tints of the eggs were greyish, and on the greener portions they most assimilatively assumed that coloration. In some instances, however, conspicuously contrasted eggs quickly caught the eye. Dr. Long pointed out one egg on a dark ground of a vivid bluish-green, and some nests contained three differently coloured eggs. Every egg was blotched more or less with bluish ash and dark brown. The eggs of the common tern were easily distinguished from those of its confrere by their larger size. In almost every instance, three eggs were laid, and most of them were hard set. I obtained an addled one of each species, and understood that one clutch of young birds had already forsaken their nest. We looked in vain, however, for any of them in the adjacent marums. They appear to be as capable of concealment as the little ones of the ringed plover. Extreme vigilance was necessary to avoid trampling on nests, but we soon learned to spot them, thanks to Tom Kringle's trademark in the shape of a heel-pushed heap about a foot away from each. With a few exceptions, every nest of the common tern was lined with coarse, sixpenny-sized pieces of cockle and oyster shells, those of the little terns being adorned by a handful of finer fragments. There can be no doubt these pieces of shell are collected by the birds instinctively for the sake of their useful retention of heat. They certainly do not add to comfort otherwise. All the eggs were not only warm to the touch, but the lining of shells was distinctly so also. Their ring plover neighbours used still smaller fragments. 
a few of the larger terns nests were lined with dry grass bents and formed really comfortable cosy habitations here and there we came across patches of pebbles running larger many being the size of the terns eggs others as large as a hen's egg these seemed to be seldom wetted even by the sea spray and were of a blue-grey colour many of them were plentifully spotted with a minute lichen which i have seen referred to as lecanora aspersa and also as lecidea petrea the latter most probably being the correct name the author provides the following footnote i forwarded the lichen-covered stone from oldborough to the late h d geldart who wrote i sent one of your stones to london to be named the spots on it are the hypothalus of lecidea petrea a tolerably common lichen on pebbles end of footnote wherever a trio of eggs had been located amongst these the similitude was remarkable i took a stone or two home with me and placing egg and stones together made a coloured sketch of them just for the novelty of it these lichen-spotted stones do not occur at yarmouth where all the shingle strips are subject to the laving of the sea waves but at oldborough on the suffolk coast under conditions like those obtaining at wells i found long stretches of them exactly corresponding in appearance we presently hid in the long marram grass on the higher sand heaps when the terns with no more ado simply flew above their nests and from an elevation of ten or twenty feet alighted right down upon them their wings closing as their light buoyant bodies touched their precious eggs the wind was easterly and nearly all their agitated manoeuvres had been performed with head to it and they without exception sat upon their eggs with the bill pointing eastward the clamour ceased at once just before we sat down on the sand dune we flushed a red-legged partridge from its nest the startled bird dashing across the nesting area whereupon the angry terns darted down upon it and fairly mobbed it out of sight i regret that my time was so limited for the nesting habits of the terns are exceedingly interesting and tom kringle himself a characteristic son of the marshes was no chick at bird lore nor uninteresting in his conversation a mighty hunter of wildfowl he may be in the winter months but a famous and reliable watcher he appears to be in his proper season and i question whether any of the egg poaching fraternity would profit by trying any of their games upon him that the very careful protection given the terns at nesting time is rewarded by good results seems to be an assured fact and one only regrets 
that on their passage south in the autumn they should be treated with scant kindliness by irresponsible gunners it is gratifying too to know that at cly and blakeney equally famous nesting places similar protection is afforded them and the report issued by this society is so entertaining that i am constrained to copy a few lines from the watcher's report for nineteen o four may the twenty second found lesser and common terns and dotterels or ringed plovers nests with eggs may the twenty eighth to end of month plenty of fresh nests june the twelfth first clutch of lesser terns and dotterels hatched out june the thirteenth and fourteenth first lot of common terns hatched strong healthy birds the last line of our pynchon's report is most satisfactory i am sure there are more tern sheldrake etc come every year the report for 1905 for cly and blakeney was equally satisfactory and as it may be interesting for comparison i take the liberty of adding it the following are from r pynchon's entries may the twenty second found several lesser terns and dotterels nests with eggs may the twenty third and twenty fourth found first nest of common tern and plenty of nests of each sort to end of month june the seventh first clutch of dotterels hatched out june the tenth first clutch of lesser terns june the eleventh and twelfth several more hatched out strong healthy birds june the fifteenth first clutch of common tern june the sixteenth saw young sheldrakes there were a good number of nests which hatched out well this season from june the sixteenth to the twenty first terns and dotterels hatching out and doing extra well very few young ones have died june the twenty fourth saw young lesser terns with feathers would soon be able to fly june the twenty sixth saw clutch of twelve young sheldrake and another clutch of six july the second three young redshanks hatched out of nest of four eggs one egg bad these were very late july the third saw some sandwich terns but none nested here most of the young ones got off very early there were several fresh nests of common terns after july the third i poisoned the rats before the birds commenced to nest but was much troubled with a few stoats during the latter part of the season however i succeeded in killing most of them during the winter i saw three iceland gulls one old and two young ones also some little gulls and a sabine's gull but nothing else rare signed r pynchon
I was fortunate in seeing the report of the Wells Wild Bird Protection Society for 1905, and append the same. Twyford Hall, April the 25th, 1906. The watcher, Tom Kringle, informs me that the number of nesting terns increased as usual, especially the lesser terns, of which there were at least 60 pairs. There were no high tides during the season. I went round the nests on July the 3rd and found that a great number of the young birds were dying off. I thought that as many as half the hatch were dead or dying. The dead birds had no marks of injury on them, and whether they died from an epidemic or from starvation, I cannot say. Arthur Patterson notes that herring sile, the chief food of the terns, were remarkably scarce in the summer of 1905. There had been no rough weather to prevent the old ones fishing, nor heavy hailstorms, but all that I picked up appeared to have empty crops. An increasing number of visitors went round the nests. Signed, C. A. Hammond, Secretary. Braden Herons at Home Nine miles to the southwest of Great Yarmouth, on the north side of the River Yare, lies the large but scattered village of Reedham, so named, it is supposed, from the great quantities of reeds that formerly characterised the adjacent lowlands, and made somewhat important by reason of its being a junction on the Great Eastern Railway. It was here, too, that Lodbrog the Dane is said to have been slain by the jealous Burn, the Saxon king's huntsman. To me, the greatest interest attaching to Reedham is the fact that a flourishing colony of herons is established there, and, after a long-determined intention, I at length paid a hurried visit to it on the hot, sultry afternoon of July the 15th, 1905. The heronry may be easily seen from the windows of the train, just as it enters the outskirts of the village, although the unsuspecting might pass and repass it many times without a knowledge of its existence. At intervals along the route, the lumbering flight of a passing heron may be noticed or some member of this colony may be seen thigh-deep in a braden run, watching for a lunch of eels, and now and again another, scarce troubling to look at the snorting engine ahead of us, stolidly eyes the ditch he stands in, hoping for the coming of some vole or stickleback, for he knows the monster to be harmless as far as he is concerned. The Reedham Heronry is situated about a mile from the station, in a wooded car, on rising ground where the marshes commence, and it is reached by a roundabout roadway, made lively for the pedestrian at this season by the flies, which seem to be awaiting his coming in the tall nettles that front the thick-set hedges, 
and where the meadow-brown butterflies start ahead at his shadow. I was fortunate in finding Mr. Preston, the steward, immediately on entering the farm premises, and was made noisily welcome by a brace of chained dogs. It was but a short ramble from here to the heronry, the harsh cries of some of the birds betokening that several of them were as yet at home. Preston, an intelligent and interesting man, who seemed justly proud of the birds, pointed out, as we strolled along, a turnip field most woefully suffering from the canker. On every leaf or remnant of it were numbers of small green larvae, with curiously pointed posterior, and which skipped about in a most excited manner on a sheet of paper when touched, in that lateral, wriggling fashion assumed by a chopped worm, but infinitely more quickly. The author provides the following footnote. I forwarded several of them to Mr. H. J. Thewlis of Norwich, with whom they pupated. He has since informed me they were the larvae of a small moth, Plutella cruciferarum. It is a very distinctive species. End of footnote. I was afterwards informed that my old friends, the starlings, went after them by thousands. But the pests were so widely distributed in Norfolk that year that irreparable damage was done the farmers. On the field mentioned, a hundred and forty herons have at times assembled. As one enters the closely packed clump of tall Scotch firs and somewhat attenuated ashes, he is greatly impressed by the luxuriant growth of the reeds and bracken that, often together, crowd beneath them, the fronds of the latter shoulder-high in places. Whilst beautiful ferns, tall, vicious nettles, and sprays of red campion abound, and hundreds of red-ripe wild raspberries invite him to pluck and taste them. The height of the trees and their thickly bushed tops attract attention, as also does one ancient fir, standing in their midst, dead and decaying a barked, scarred, and punctured skeleton. You feel something akin to pity as well as interest in the old thing, which seems ready to totter and fall, but the sturdy survivors clustering around it ward off the evil day and screen it from every wind. In that dead tree, more interest seemed centred than in all those living, it had died of sheer old age, and was now a happy hunting ground of the lesser spotted woodpecker. The droppings of the herons had not killed it, or why had it suffered alone? The thickly growing undergrowth had caught much of the heron's excreta, before any of it had touched the earth beneath it, and, far from suffering, grew the more rankly for it. There was an ancient and fish-like smell in the air that tickled the nostrils somewhat, but not offensively, 
although the bailiff assured me there was something in it after a heavy shower of rain kestrels were here in plenty and the keen-eyed hawks dashed into the open with emphatic and shrilly cries of key 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 at our approach you don't kill the kestrels i asked of preston no i do not he replied they are far too useful a remark that spoke much for his forbearance and common sense wood pigeons too flip-flapped away from their slovenly nests leaving their low-built loosely stacked bundles of faggots in hot haste in one instance i saw the greater part of an egg showing between the foundations in a few moments we came under the heron's nests which needed no pointing out for such huge constructions although by no means carelessly built and with several occasionally adorning a single tree stood out boldly between my binoculars and the sky while in a few open spaces between the topmost boughs old birds might be seen wheeling around on light strong wing in a manner by no means ungraceful and altogether different from that heavy lumbering flight one notices as fishing birds move from one braid and drain to another or when they are lazily winging their way over the marsh ditches the familiar frank was repeatedly uttered and an occasional deeper bass troke betrayed anxiety and a note of warning some nest had probably and unwittingly been bereft of a juvenile tenant presently we found our surmise correct for we came across a young heron full feathered but unable to fly who at our approach scared and excited played a clumsy game of leapfrog with the bracken he has often blundered through we let him go his parents would have found it awkward to drop through the tangled branches to come and console him but there can be no doubt he will find enough food thrown down to him perhaps unintentionally to keep him going until he dares venture out to the neighbouring ditches to hunt for himself only a few young herons remained in their nests the majority indeed sat or stood just outside them we noted that they were well feathered and all but ready to follow their elders to their daily war upon the frogs voles and fishes but such bundles of faggots were these high perch nests some of them would well nigh have filled a wheelbarrow on one large ash tree there must have been over a dozen and the whole ninety and more of them were so closely built that you might have sat in the central one and easily have pitched its eggs into the furthermost nest and this is the heronry in the very wood wherein three hundred years ago sir thomas brown also saw the spoonbills nesting 
I felt like taking off my hat, for the place seemed hallowed by associations and venerable in its history. The herons are looked for every year, regular as a clock, on February the 1st. Their call is heard for the first time, the bailiff assured me, on that date at about eight in the evening, so punctual are they on their return. On April the 1st, young ones are heard twipping in the nests. In early summer, the young ones keep much in the vicinity of the wood, using that side most sheltered from the wind. The frogs, water voles, sticklebacks and other creatures in the neighbouring moist places then pay heavy toll. At pairing time there is much ado in the treetops, squabbles being not infrequent. And no wonder when they begin to set up establishments as close to each other as houses in a Yarmouth row. In August they all depart and find fresh pastures. Some, no doubt, take a trip to the continent, a procedure as fashionable with birds as with men. It was made pretty plain too, where there were nests overhead, by the big area of white-splashed plants below. A score of angry and inebriated whitewashers could not have flung their whitewash half so effectively. It seemed to have rained excreta. And lying around in the less besmeared places, and under the bracken, were many pellets, mostly the size of duck's eggs. I noticed these in hundreds when brushing aside the herbage in order to discover any fish that might have fallen. But in this search I was not fortunate, though I picked up a three-inch tail-end of an eel, brown, frayed, and evil-smelling. It had evidently been thrown up by an overfed or excited youngster. Two of the pellets I took home with me and pulled to pieces. They smelt like decayed mushrooms. They were hard to disintegrate, being closely matted, and had much the appearance, when torn, of black cotton wool. I found them composed almost entirely of the fur of the water vole, with a few broken, brittle teeth and fragments of skulls that crumbled somewhat easily between the fingers. I warrant that the herons destroy thousands of water voles in the course of a season. In one pellet I found cream-white maggot-like larvae, probably of some beetle, and many minute insects that, on white paper, by the aid of a powerful lens, could be distinguished as a microscopic beetle much resembling a staphylinid. Mr. Preston remarked that the herons did now and again drop small eels, running up to half a pound, and sometimes a few small freshwater fishes. He had found half a small jack, and a trout weighing at least a pound, but had never discovered a flatfish, which is curious, seeing that in certain seasons, when eels are not plentiful, flounders have to satisfy them when fishing on Braden.
I saw early in July six young herons busy on Braden, capturing little flounders. End of section 12